So hello and welcome to the Inspired Thinkers podcast series by Arate House. My name is Toby Mendelssohn and the name of this episode is Aristotle, Arate. Now, in my opinion, Aristotle is the most influential human thinker of any time and any place. So that is, in all of human history. Or at least all of the human history that we have some reasonable knowledge about. So, if this was a clickbait article, and I came up with a list of my top 20 influential thinkers across all domains and civilizations, from politics to science to religion to art, Well, I would probably have Jesus, Confucius, Newton, Plato, Galileo and Buddha all in the top ten. And I would have Aristotle at number one. So there you go. That's, of course, a very big call. And quite obviously there are many ways that one could contest that. So... I want to begin this episode by qualifying that kind of claim just a little bit. And that entails giving a bit of history about Aristotle's influence rather than going deeply into the philosophy. But in the episode I'd like to go beyond introduction, history and clickbait if I can. So really the episode is going to be framed on rather a different axiom. It's an axiom of what Aristotle can offer us today in the 21st century. And these are his immense contributions to ethics and politics. So that's what I'll mainly be talking about once I get through the history. And I should also forewarn you that when I turn to the biographical or the narrative part of the episode... In explaining my personal great leap backwards from contemporary thinking to the thinking of classical antiquity, I will almost certainly start ranting about the shortcomings of postmodernism. It's one of my many contradictions that I love to rant against postmodernism, even though I deeply embody key features of postmodernism in just about everything I do. So in any case, I'm quite sure that if I do start ranting it, it will be very annoying to many of you. So I give you an advanced apology here. So before I jump into the substance of the episode and talk about Aristotelian ethics and politics, I do think it's prudent to give some qualification for the vastness of his influence and some reason for why I've granted him the number one spot on my clickbait list of influential thinkers. Part of the reason for his immense influence is that the scope and breadth of his work was and remains basically unprecedented in scope. There's really never been anyone before or since 
who has contributed so widely to human knowledge and understanding. It's widely in terms of the breadth of different disciplines to which he contributed. And also the degree to which his contributions remain the benchmark or foundation of knowledge in those disciplines, often for exceedingly long periods of time. So, for example, Aristotle more or less invented formal logic in his text called the Organon. And so logic remained basically unchanged from when he wrote that text in the, sometime in the 300s BC all the way into the 19th century. So he kind of provided us with the template for how to reason. And that template survived for millennia, which is in itself an immense contribution. And that's merely one example. Beyond logic, his physics, his biology, his zoology, his politics, his ethics, his metaphysics, his astronomy and cosmology, at various times became the foundation for understanding the nature of reality at various historical points and places. From late antiquity in classical Greece, through early medieval times to the Renaissance, and in some areas through modernity and the Enlightenment. He influenced the Islamic Arabic world, he influenced the Judaic world, and a little later the Latin Western world, especially via the Christian theologian Thomas Aquinas. Now, I'm clearly making some generalizations here and maybe some big exclusions as well. All of what I'm saying is to some degree debatable. And I'm sure that a good scholar in the history of ideas or the history of science would be able to contest or maybe dispute some of my claims. But that's okay. The point I'm trying to make is simply that his influence was truly immense. And not just in one field, but to some degree in all of them. And not just in one civilization or culture, but in three very notable ones. And none of that is really debatable. Nonetheless, a big part of the story of Aristotle's vast influence is the fact that it rapidly declines as the Western world enters a modern age and resets itself on a kind of mechanistic, rationalistic footing. So this begins to happen from the late 16th century and starts going with much more intensity through the 17th and 18th centuries. So I'm talking here about the rise of modern science via thinkers such as Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton, the rise of modern epistemology via thinkers such as René Descartes and John Locke, and the rise of modern political philosophy by thinkers such as Thomas Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And the interesting thing here is that this rise of what we now call the modern epoch was often very expressly about overhauling and rejecting 
the aforementioned influence of Aristotle. Which is to say that Aristotelian philosophy and science is really the thing to be gotten rid of in order for the modern world to be ushered in. And this tells us something critical, that this Aristotelian influence somehow became completely entrenched, especially in the West, as the dominant view for many hundreds of years. And a big part of the reason for this was that none other than the church itself accepted and promoted many components of the Aristotelian view, from metaphysics to cosmology to the natural world or biology to ethics and logic. All of this became intertwined with Christian theology, especially via its greatest theologian, whom I mentioned before, Thomas Aquinas. And there are, of course, many dissenters from this Thomistic Aristotelian worldview, but it was still, in a way, the dominant view. And so the vastness of his influence is partly explained by this. And partly explained by his influence on the Arabic Islamic world and the Judaic world, which I did discuss a little bit in the Maimonides episode, which you can go back and listen to. I think all of this can be somewhat counter to our usual 21st century intuitions about religious power, knowledge, belief and orthodoxy. You know, some time ago I was in London and I was walking on the street and I saw a billboard on a bus that just had two words in quotation marks. And the words were, celebrate reason. And then in small writing at the bottom, join the Atheist Society. And I remember looking at that and thinking, do you not realise that this is precisely what the church has been doing all of this time? Because Aristotle is the quintessential rationalist, and as an Aquinas, as a most influential Catholic theologian, is very overtly Aristotelian. Now, this is not to assert that the church had no dogmas. In fact, quite to the contrary. A big part of the struggle between modern and medieval thinking was a struggle between an Aristotelian worldview promoted by the Catholic Church and the new cosmologies and physics discovered by thinkers such as Galileo, Copernicus, Newton and so forth. We all know who won that battle. And it's really important to see that if there was any kind of definitive transition from medieval to modern, it was defined by a very explicit rejection of Aristotle. So as I mentioned, Aristotle is in a way the thing to be gotten rid of in order for modern science, physics, cosmology and so forth to take stock. And there was indeed much success on that front. Which means that today Aristotle is largely consigned to our study of ancient or medieval worlds in a lot of those areas, 
So in a way, he becomes nothing more than a sort of massive historical footnote in the history of ideas. And this begs the question, why study him now? Why am I doing an episode on him? Is it just for the historical interest, i.e. does it tell us something about where we've been? Or is there anything that Aristotle has to offer us today? And I think there are, in two domains, ethics and politics, where there has been a notable resurgence in Aristotelian philosophy, and which I think remains deeply relevant to our contemporary situation. So that's mainly what I'll be speaking about in the rest of the episode. Let me first turn to the biographical part of the episode. And as I mentioned at the beginning, this may turn into something of a rant and maybe something of a confession. My encounter with Aristotle was what could be called a slow burner, which is to say that his ideas seeped into me in a very slow and gradual way. And at the very beginning of this process, Aristotle was merely an ancient, famous name, perhaps how it is for some of you now. I sensed the importance or the influence of the name but had no real desire to penetrate into it or to try and understand it. And there's really nothing problematic about that. You can't know everything ever written, and in order to know anything, you really generally have to follow your interests. So there's no crime in not being interested in something. But Aristotle didn't remain that way for me. He became an object of interest. And this is the point of embarrassing conceit and egotism, and maybe the confession. Because while still without any real desire to penetrate into Aristotle's actual philosophy, I nonetheless gained a strong impulse to tear it all down, to critique, deconstruct, destroy. Now, it's hard to imagine anything quite so foolish and ignorant as this, that rather than learning about a philosopher or philosophy, and on that basis coming to understand the strengths and weaknesses of it, rather than approaching in that careful and considered way, instead having an instinct only to criticise, only to destroy, only to find ways to say, this is wrong and I reject it. So, I'm talking here of a posture of criticism and rejection, which is precisely what prevents a considered engagement. Now, I actually explored this kind of posture or instinct to critique and deconstruct in the Nietzsche episode. So you can have a listen to that if you haven't already. And in that episode, I outed myself, then and there, as a great dogmatist and fool. 
for adopting that kind of posture. But having taken some kind of personal responsibility for it in that episode, what I want to do here is acknowledge that that kind of foolish, critical attitude was not just me alone acting in conceit. That actually in some academic circles, such a way of proceeding is officially sanctioned and academically legitimate. So you can in fact be greatly rewarded for that. So let me explain the wider movements of this impulse. And this is where the rant may begin. People of my generation have been educated under the rising bright star of postmodernism. And to be fair to this bright star, I think it does shine out with some very gifted thinkers. Thinkers such as Derrida and Foucault and Lyotard and Deleuze. If you actually read those thinkers closely, you generally do find rich insights and nuanced critiques and some kind of penetrative wisdom. But being educated under the bright star of postmodernism is rather a different story. Because in this case, it's less about engaging deeply with the thinking of that tradition and more about adopting wholesale certain key axioms which emerge out of that tradition and which one cannot flout or question under any circumstances. So what I'm really saying is that postmodernism, very ironically, becomes the very thing it is trying to deny. A kind of fixed ideological system. An ingrained and inflexible way of thinking about or interpreting things. So you must always say, cultural context, historical context, knowledge is power, reason is desire, morality is relative, humans are animals, and so forth and so forth. And one such axiom in this system, which runs deep and cannot be flouted, is that one must always deconstruct, deny and critique, quote-unquote, Western metaphysics. The slightest trace of Western metaphysics has a smell of something automatically bad and wrong. And so if one goes sniffing through anything pre-19th century, the nose is supposed to automatically recoil at the mere trace of it. And so the attitude and posture is to critique and deconstruct the entire history and tradition of Western philosophy without so much as a cursory glance into it. That is, one does not have to do any kind of actual philosophical work to establish its problems. It's sort of automatically wrong because it's wrong. Or to be more precise and ranty about it, it's wrong because someone French and cool said it was wrong. And so the very last thing that anyone does is actually read or study any of the old Western metaphysicians who are being criticised. And in fact, it's quite acceptable to simply not do metaphysics. Now, if that sounds really stupid and dogmatic, it's because it is. And if it sounds like I'm exaggerating rather crassly myself, 
let me assure you that I'm not. That way of proceeding was really the legitimate way of being educated in many departments, and in many ways it still is. So what you learn is how to shoot things down without understanding them. And so you become a kind of intellectual cowboy, riding your horse through the deserts of deconstruction. At some point, if you're lucky, you look at your gun and you realise that all your bullets were blanks. And your herd is dispersed into a million places. So you get off your horse and you start actually reading all the figures you were shooting blanks at. And if you do that, you lose your cowboy hat and you lose all traces of your coolness. But you probably gain a certain earnest credibility. So I'm sorry if that all sounds really petty and self-enclosed. Sounds that way because it was. That was actually the situation I walked into. As an undergrad sometime in the mid-noughties, there was a large abyss between the postmodern cowboys and all the earnest, uncool ones committed to such things as logic, evidence, metaphysics and nitty-gritty scholarship. So I picked my side of the abyss, that's the postmodern cowboy side, and rallied against the old, boring philosophy department, lost to the heaviness of its own history. And so I adopted all of those immutable postmodern axioms as my compass and map. Which meant that in reality, I had no idea who I was, where I stood, and where I was going. I just had my silly gun with rubber bullets. And I just tried to shoot things down. So this implied trying to destroy Aristotle without bothering to even engage with him. So that was my first attempt to go beyond merely knowing the name. Once I got rid of the cowboy hat, there were three things which drew me more genuinely into an engagement with Aristotle. And paradoxically, one of those things was actually one of the aforementioned postmodern thinkers. And this was the great French historian philosopher Michel Foucault. Foucault gave yearly lectures at the Collège de France. And these ended up being published. And in one of these years, he called the topic hermeneutics of the subject. And I read this text very closely with a few others, and it was a wondrous account, drawing on some of the great ancient Roman and Greek philosophers. Philosophers like Seneca, Plotinus and Aurelius. Now, I don't think Aristotle was mentioned, but, some, but nonetheless, the text gave me a kind of thirst for ancient Greece and Rome, alongside a sense that people with a classical education surely know that some of the treasures of those civilizations remain treasures now. And so perhaps that provided the thirst to make a genuine attempt at ancient Greece. And right away we began Plato and then followed up with Aristotle's ethics and politics. And it was wonderful to be properly inside those texts. The second thing was my curious flirtation with the medieval Judaic philosopher 
Moses Maimonides. He was swimming through Aristotelian waters a lot of the time, sometimes with the tide, sometimes against it. Now, the last episode was on this, so I won't say any more about this now, except that I quite inadvertently learned a fair bit of Aristotle's metaphysics through that engagement. And I also learned where the gaps were in my knowledge that I might want to fill in. And the third thing was, I, was that I was getting increasingly drawn into working and teaching on ethics and political philosophy. And the more I worked directly on certain problems in those areas, the more I discovered that the tools that Aristotle laid out were rather useful and usable now. So I want to end the episode by explaining precisely how. And in fact, I can sum it up in one word. Habits. The key idea is this, that as human beings, we are dispositional, which means that we are creatures of habit. And our habits accumulate via what we think and intend and ultimately what we do or practice. So it follows that the kind of person that we are, the kind of character that we forge, depends entirely upon the kinds of things we have intended and done. So, on a personal level, we need to think of ourselves as a collection of habits. Mental habits, emotional habits, physical habits. The way we walk, eat, drive our car, think, talk and interact is all deeply habitual. So we need to think of ourselves not so much as independent, static, innate things, but as complex messes of different habits. Aristotle's insight into human nature hinges on this, and I think it is a profoundly true insight. And there are all sorts of modern ways of coming to the same kind of view. So, for example, modern psychology very often sees psychological problems as grounded in negative habitual responses to situations. And it redresses those problems by trying to retrain the way that the mind thinks and interprets. So this is the approach of cognitive behavioural therapy. It's really about retraining habits. And the psychoanalytic approach runs rather more deeply. And it locates the cause of most of our most powerful habits in early childhood. And it sees neurosis as nothing more than deeply entrenched patterns or habits of desire and repression. It's also there in neuroscience. The brain is understood in terms of neural pathways or patterns. And these are usually very well trodden. So our brains are conditioned to function in highly habitual ways. You could say that our brain is itself a creature of habit. It can make new neural connections and patterns. So for example, if you try to learn a new language or travel somewhere new. But this newness occurs in the context of pre-existing 
pathways or patterns. So I suppose we could ask, if modern ways of seeing ourselves are like this, why go back over two millennia to Aristotle? And I think Aristotle provides a template about what to do with this insight. The insight that we are a mess of habits. And this template is his moral philosophy. Which, to sum it up really crudely and succinctly, is all about getting rid of your bad habits and cultivating good ones. And his point is that the only way to succeed in such an approach is to actually do it. You cannot become brave by merely telling yourself, I am brave. You have to act bravely. Mere thinking is kind of flimsy, idealist, new age approach to flourishing. So, for example, Aristotle says in Book 2 of his Ethics, and I quote here, For the things we have to learn before we can do them, we learn by doing them. For example, men become builders by building, and liar players by playing the liar. So too, we become just by doing just acts, temperate by doing temperate acts, brave by doing brave acts. So his profoundly pragmatic point is that you actually have to undertake courageous actions to generate the habit of bravery. And not just once or twice, but continually, until the disposition of bravery or courage becomes ingrained. And then you express bravery almost automatically, as part of your character, when the situation demands it. And I think that's the really beautiful part of this Aristotelian story. A virtuous character is something crafted, like an athlete's body. And that takes an enormous amount of discipline and training. But when the athlete runs, they just run. They run fast and beautifully. Their speed, agility and flexibility is sort of already there. They don't need to think about it. And I think that in modern life we continually cheat ourselves out of this insight simply because it is demanding. It is difficult. It takes time and you actually have to work on it all of the time. Which is to say that a good moral character is forged day in, day out, through consistent actions. There's no other way to get there. I think we all want easier solutions and we sort of expect that modern science or theory is going to give them to us. So we want to pop pills that fix our minds, change diets, train ourselves to think positive, anything but acknowledge that living a flourishing human life entails developing a well-rounded and beautiful moral character and that this is really a lifetime occupation. It implies constant work. It may be a kind of aristocratic ethos, at least if we follow Aristotle very literally, but I think it implies something rather more blue-collar. 
that a good moral life means getting your hands dirty and doing the work. So the earlier quote about the liar player is beautifully expressive of this. We need to see that moral life is like perfecting an art or musical instrument. And there's no easy way to do that. You have to practice in order to perfect. But when you are accomplished as a musician, you sort of automatically make fine music. It becomes natural for you to do that. Now, I don't want to propose here that moral or psychological life begins and ends with Aristotle. I think it's plain as day that there are many deep ethical dilemmas that we all face, which Aristotelian ethics cannot remotely solve. And I think it's also true that this whole character-based enterprise of trying to become virtuous can end up looking a little bit like an 18th century Jane Austen novel. You know, we're trying to become some kind of Mr. Darcy is rather inappropriate for our 21st century. But in the same breath, we can probably get around this by redefining virtue and vice in our age and rethinking what a flourishing life might look like. And I certainly do want to propose that a great many of our supposedly intractable problems can be directly addressed and resolved by diligently adopting this Aristotelian approach, namely of cultivating virtues and eradicating vices. Now let me be frank about this. To do this well, we have to go beyond diet. Now these days everyone is very adept at abandoning gluten or dairy or sugar and consuming olive oil, kale and quinoa. In fact, people are relentless about this, eradicating in their diets all the bad things and cultivating the good things. But for some reason, a lot of people think that flourishing begins and ends with their diet. And so they relentlessly forge virtuous eating habits and entirely lose sight of the fact that everything else about them is habitual too, including their minds and their emotions and their bodies. And for that reason, it's all subject to the same process of transformation. And I think this is a very liberating point, that there is nothing particularly fixed about our character. To some degree, we always have some kind of agency to act in ways which slide us closer to flourishing. And if we happen to have some problematic traits, laziness or cowardice or whatever, it is indeed possible to diminish or even eradicate them. And so it's very practical in this way. And this is exactly what Aristotle calls his ethics. It's phrenesis, practical wisdom. So that's all I'm going to say about Aristotle's ethics. It's a template devised in ancient Greece that I think is very, very applicable now. And let me finish with the politics. 
In this series, I have already raised my liberal flag with Immanuel Kant and my socialist flag with Karl Marx. And if that isn't enough of a contradiction, let me here raise my conservative flag with Aristotle. And then I can call myself a liberal socialist conservative and simply agree and disagree with the entire political sphere at the same time. You might think that sounds hard, but actually I'm surprisingly good at it. I hope most of you will be happy to hear that raising the conservative Aristotle flag does not entail a politics of slaves and subjugating women, which are two things he is infamous for promoting in his politics. But it does entail seeing politics as a collective enterprise, rather than one solely concerned with individual freedom. And it simultaneously entails seeing law and policy making as one which is concerned with the moral character of the polis or nation state as a whole. Both of these things are really quite profoundly anti-liberal. And I'm Aristotelian enough to want to move our politics at least a little bit in both of those directions. And I'm just going to say something about the first point to finish the episode, because we are getting somewhat pressed for time. And this point is something of a meta-level idea about the nature of politics itself. Something like a fundamental question about why we have politics in the first instance. And there are, of course, a lot of answers to that in political theory. There is the problem of security. There is a need for organisation. There is a basic issue of trying to get stuff done. There is the economic desire to increase living standards. There is individual issue of wanting to be free and so on and so on. Aristotle asks us to contemplate that more deeply. And I think in our time... This implies asking, what are we actually doing with all of our parliaments and lobby groups and judiciaries and elections and laws and policies and activism, etc., etc.? Why are we actually doing all of this? For what purpose? For what end? And I'm not sure we've got any idea about this anymore. We've entirely lost sight of that kind of meta-question. So the true answer to that question is, basically we're on a runaway freight train, and the point of politics is just to keep building more tracks so it doesn't run off the rails. So it's the same answer all of the time. Keep the train running, keep the train running, keep the train running. But how, you ask? Well, the answer is always in the most efficient way possible. Which is sort of an instrumentalist and market-based answer. This means sort of look at all the possibilities for building more track, evaluate the potential consequences and always choose the most efficient. But why, you ask? And the answer is, well, it's because the train must go on. 
That's politics in contemporary Australia and many other industrialized places. The train must go on. And I think everyone realizes this is deeply inadequate. Yet no one frames that deep question. What is the point of politics in the first instance? And without framing that kind of question, it is impossible to answer. So people just write angry comments on social media and vote out whoever happens to be driving the train. And Aristotle's answer is this, that the very point of politics is to help citizens of the polis or state cultivate virtuous habits and thus lead flourishing lives. So it is to provide the structural conditions necessary for people to perfect their characters such that they can actually flourish. So his politics is perfectly complementary with his ethics. The two go entirely together. Now it stands to reason that we all have different ideas of what that might actually look like. So it is an inherently contestable question. But Aristotle's point is that the polis or state ought to have some kind of definite conception of this. And the point of enacting laws and policies is precisely to realize or actualize that conception. Now, what this might mean practically is somewhat messy and maybe a bit complicated, especially for liberal societies, because it deeply violates the very premise of liberalism, the premise that everyone ought to work out for themselves what the good life or what flourishing is, and then go about pursuing it in their own way. So the idea of liberalism is that the state should keep the hell away from imposing its vision of the good life on the people. You let everyone decide that for themselves. And I want an each-way bet on that question. I definitely do not want the state to rustle up its vision of the good and impose it on me through its laws and policies. Especially if that vision expressly violates all of my core values and ideals. So I'm enough of a liberal to fear that possibility. But in the same breath, I also don't want the state to just charge along as a runaway freight train, making every decision as, we need more rails so we can keep going, we will make more in the most efficient way possible, we're not interested in this quaint ancient thing called flourishing, we don't want you to flourish, we want you to build more track. So I think there is an in-between. And bear in mind that Aristotle is not a democrat. Definitively not a democrat. But if we're going to get there in some kind of fair and at least quasi-democratic fashion, we all need to have a go at asking what flourishing looks like and what kind of structural conditions we may need to actualize it. I think it's critical that 
we start asking that kind of question. So I'll end with that request. Contemplate this question. What would a flourishing state look like? And what kind of structural conditions might we need to actualize it? So I'll leave you with that to contemplate. Stay tuned for more podcasts in the Inspired Thinker series at aratehouse.com.au.